Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. We've got Gary Glick with us today. Gary is a special guest on the American Shoreline Podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about Gary. He is president of Friends of the RGV Reef an organization in Texas that is responsible for the largest industrial scale artificial reef project. The first industrial scale uh, nursery reef in the Gulf of Mexico. The The biologists tell me in the world, but I find it's such a good idea and it works so well, I find it hard to believe that somebody else hadn't already figured it out. Well, Gary, we're going to learn all about it in the discussion today on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Gary, can't wait to get into the interview. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. We've got three sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that help us keep going. Uh, We want to acknowledge them. We do in every show. Thank you to Frederica Barrasset and her team at Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, a great coastal restoration company from conceptual design permitting and construction and what we're talking about here is native dune plant restoration frederick barrisset and dune doctors find them at dunedoctors.com we'd also like to thank coastal engineering consultants one of the one of the best coastal engineering consultancy firms uh, on the american shoreline certainly along the gulf coast if you are in florida if you're uh, even here in texas uh, contact contact michael poff and his out Standing team at Coastal Engineering Consultants, coastalengineering.com. And LJA Engineering and our good friend Bill Worsham, the head of the Coastal Division at LJA, 28 offices along the Gulf of Mexico, mostly in Texas. A real professional gets the job done. Bill Worsham at LJA Engineering. Find them at LJA.com. Oh, and I know a guy from LJA, and he's smart. Um, Jay Gardner works for LJA. Wow, how about that? He does indeed, and does a lot of work down there in the valley. Very cool. Well, listen, uh, Gary, it's great to have you on. We've we've had the pleasure of knowing Gary for some time. In fact, we did a little work with him a few years ago, back before uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. But uh, Gary, uh, we've we've introduced you. By now, our audience knows that you have created this marvelous reef. But I wanted to start this off with a little background about you and and growing up down there in deep South Texas on the South Texas shoreline. Tell our audience a little bit about that area, what it was like to grow up there, and uh, your connection with the shore and the sea and fishing. I was thinking about that the other day, and we were just free-range children. I cannot believe how much we were allowed to do. Um, My father and uncle were twins, and they were taking us offshore in the 60s when we were tiny. My we were running around offshore in a riveted 18-foot aluminum boat as teenagers with no radio, no Loran, no nothing. Um, our parents would have been turned into Child Protective Services these days. But it was marvelous, and, and we managed not to hurt each other, and we, we got to do fabulous things. We we were scuba diving all the time. We were fishing all the time. <laughs> Our little riveted boat, we ran it offshore so much that it was an 18-foot aluminum Lone Star, and every 
every seam on it leaked. And so we would pack it into the water and and get it up on a plane as quick as we could and pull the plug and let the water run out the back. And so we'd pull up to the rigs. They were rigs off Port Mansfield at the time. And two of us would bail off into the water. And one would have to stay and run the little pump, you pump, 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 to pump the water out of the boat. Um, but there were lots of fish then. And it was a lot of fun. There were many more fish then. We got to, to, to use bigger and better boats and go further offshore. And, uh, you know, we were ultimately wound up being charter boat captains and, and we did a bunch of marlin fishing and we, um, oh, I worked on a shrimp boat for a little while. And eventually in the late eighties, we all decided we were going to have to get lives and get married and have children and get real jobs. And we, we kind of laid off from fishing, but we got to see it when there were so many fish in the Gulf. It was just so many more. I, I worry about the tuna fish. I think that, that the guys out at those deep oil rigs are fixing to catch the last ones, but I can't do anything about that. So I don't, there's just no cure for that, that I can make any difference. So we don't mess with that. We started fishing again. Um, oh, maybe about seven or eight years ago, and it became apparent to us that there was inadequate hard substrate reef, particularly in state waters. Uh, and we started thinking about, well, what can we do about this? Um, and everything we wanted to do was a now, felony. Gary, before we move on to that, <laughs> there's got to be one good story in here you got to tell us about. You and your brother Bob, uh, Bob Glick, uh, who was involved in the Friends of the RG Reef on the board with you as uh, co-founder. Uh, but come on, right? You got to be. <laughs> yeah, we got. We have to. We, it, we have to stop and smell the roses. I think on this subject matter because. Um, you know, back when you, the, the, our, the Rio Grande Valley, which is what RGV stands for, uh, has transformed dramatically over your lifetime, just from a people perspective. The population has boomed. The uh, economy has transformed. South Padre Island, of course, uh, which our audience is familiar with, uh, and we have worked there and we've all spent time there. Uh, has gone from being a little sand spit with little bungalows on it, I guess, to now uh, uh, an industrial or a, a urbanized shoreline. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not it's interesting to me. You've you've spent all that time there. You were outside. I mean, you you must be seeing uh, the you've watched the transformation of the space. And I you know elaborate a little bit more on what what that has been like and connections you're making between. Um, the use man's use of the space down there and the wildlife well so what's happened with the Rio Grande Valley is starting in about the 80s there was annualized 20% population growth that means every five years the population doubled so the Rio Grande Valley went from a sleepy little place with lots of open spaces to you know I I get as I go back, it's unrecognizable to me. I mean, there's houses and buildings and businesses everywhere. Um, you know, and you can't put that many people into an environment without affecting wildlife. The, it's, it's, it's obvious and everybody knows on the land that our wild animals are habitat limited. The piece of that that is slowly coming to be realized now is that, that offshore, underwater, all those animals, same story, they're habitat limited. Um, so 
yes, South Pottery Island has gone from being kind of a sleepy little village where everybody knew everybody and the doors were all unlocked. And if you needed a place to stay, there was somebody that you, somebody's couch you could go crash on to. Um, it's just a different world now with, you know, lots of security and high-end condos and $200 a night. And, you know, it's it's kind of, it's a different world. Um, that economy has definitely changed. But, I mean, in terms of the fishing, I mean, you were guiding out there, what, would in the 80s? Is that right? Or, yes. And, I was, you know, fishing constantly through the 70s and guiding in the 80s both inshore and offshore out of what ports were you were you located all out of south padre island okay yeah yeah um what was the clientele like i mean in those days it was vacationers for the most part um the clientele hadn't changed that much what's really changed is how many fish there are and and there's so many fewer fish you know it's been said if you want to know what's happened to a fish stock talk to an old fisherman um the the number of bonita which is not a particularly uh, not a fish that's in particularly a lot of demand is 10 or 15 percent of what it was in the 80s the number of kingfish is similarly it's a little bit harder we used to chum up bonita and we could see the stock and we were jumping in the water and and if you wanted to you could chum up bonita so thick so close to the boat that you could just free gaff them wow if at, at almost every shrimp boat you could chum up bonita with with shrimp boat chum you could you could find 15 or 20 blackfin under one boat you would always find one or two blackfin under almost every boat that was deeper than at least 18 fathoms which is six fathoms is a is a is a is a fathom now you can fish all day long all the way out to 30 fathoms in the deep water where there was always blackfin tuna and if you catch one or two instead of 15 or 20 you've done well so i think that tuna that tuna stock is five or ten percent of what it was wow and what about the billfish? What? How has that population changed? Did you used to catch them down off of uh, South Padre Island? Yes, and you know that's interesting. And the billfish gig has changed so much that a little chicken really can't go and fish and be competitive with the big boats anymore. In the eighties, a little chicken could, and we were little chickens. I mean, we were going to fishing in these big money tournaments in a 23 and a half foot open boat with a single diesel engine and we named the hell yes because people said you're not going marlin fishing in that are you <laughs> the um hell yes <laughs> and, and people didn't fish offshore in little boats that much at that time now the the focus is is on dredge fishing out of really large boats and to win what you've got to do is and it's almost exclusively tag and release and what you got to do to, to win is tag and release a whole bunch of sailfish white marlin or small which means male blue marlin so that means that the really fabulous thing about this is that means that the fish stock is not under the directed fishery pressure that it was under in the 80s and i think there's about the same or slightly fewer billfish out there but the great part of it is is if you're fishing for sailfish and a big old female 400 pound female blue marlin comes up and and grabs one of your 20 pound test rigs you don't kill her right. and so i think that that the stock of large blue marlin is in pretty good shape uh i think that the sailfish stock is about where it was 
then the inshore sale fish that stock seems to me to be much depleted but the and i'm talking about you know the 20 fathom fish that you used to catch on the east bank and at seabree reef and all those places um the offshore stock you know it gets caught but it gets released That's some good news. That is good news. I mean, uh, we just recently on uh, Coastal News Today, and in fact, I think this kind of went viral across uh, social media, but there was that story, I believe they were in Florida, where they caught that massive... Uh, it was I believe a it was swordfish. Was, was it, it a swordfish? Eight, eight foot long swordfish that was recently caught. I think it was off of Texas. Was um, it really wow. massive, massive fish? Now they did kill that fish. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with with that. There's um, there's a lot of pressure on swordfish stock because the guys have figured out how to catch them during the day. It used to be very difficult to catch swordfish, and I've made myself tremendously seasick uh, laying a hull offshore, drifting baits around deep deep baits uh trying to catch swordfish at night um and gee whiz you know you get sideways in the in the in the waves and the and the boat rocks so hard that the that the ice chest is going bang bang <laughs> bang going from gunnel to gunnel wow. um, the electronics are so good that these guys that are fishing for them in the daytime can recognize on their fathometer a swordfish in in 15, 1,600 feet of water, and then drag their bait over to it and catch it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, That's let me incredible. ask you this as a, as a recreational fisherman and a charter captain and a guide in all these years. Is it still a fair fight? If you've got that kind of technology, I mean, you're going to be able to find anything that's out there uh i don't know it's certainly the game has changed hasn't it in terms of the skill level and the intuition of captains and guides back in the day it's it's still a guide's knowledge and how to manipulate the technology whether the technology is a is it doesn't matter what the technology is the your ability to neck to to manipulate and understand your technology figure out what's going on with the fish that day and and then put yourself in that loop where you can actually catch the fish is, is still a challenge. The What's happened, what's different is that the technology is getting better and better and better. The fish stocks are, are for the most part, there's, a, there's places where the fish stocks are not diminishing, but, but in many cases the fish stocks are diminishing. The piece that I find disturbing is not, is not what technology has done to sport fishing it's what technology enables in commercial fishing and let me tell you the commercial fishing technology is such that those boys when they want to they can catch the last one and that's pretty scary because it's like the old grazing commons in England. You know, every little town had their grazing commons. And, you know, if you if you had more animals that you put on the grazing commons, you ate the grass down. But but it wasn't your grass, so there was no motivation to not overgraze. It's the same thing in the oceans. And, and boy, I don't know what the answer is, but it looks ugly in places. Well, I definitely think that uh, this is an important subject matter we were i mentioned earlier uh we were at earth x uh and i spent quite a bit of time with jenna valente and uh brian uh from the terramar project brian urestes brian urestes thank you peter and um you know brian's primary focus is 
with regard to fisheries health and he was a NOAA observer and he's a fisherman like in his bones he's a fisherman but he boy I think he would agree with you um, commercial fishing at at the kind of scale to deliver the type of product that we have been trained in America to expect when you go to the grocery store and you're just going to see a seafood section that's going to be stocked all the time that requires an immense amount of catch to sustain that and um, the population like you said the global population is going up and a great deal of the protein that feeds people comes from the sea and it's just we're taking protein out of it to feed people and uh, at some point we have to ask ourselves where the limits are on that no question about it you know i'm i'm also interested though in the recreational side of it because um the other thing we see is people who are out actually in the wilderness out in uh, fishing on the ocean on the beach fishing out surfing whatever these are people who actually see uh the impacts of climate change the impacts of overfishing uh firsthand and they tend to be more invested in it um and I think your story kind of aligns with that in many respects. Would you would you agree with that? You know, you've been able to really see the change in particularly the, the snapper population uh, down there over your lifetime. And that's perhaps what motivated you to um, dive in with the reef. Well, yeah. And we talk a whole lot about snapper the reason we talk about snappers because that's where the money is and because it's where the money is that's where the research is so if i say uh well it appears that juvenile snapper are habitat limited you know sedgemeyer and galloway and and a bunch of other people there are good scientific papers that show that it's not wild stories inspired by too much rum (laughs) when we build it right for snapper we've built it right for all the rest of the fish on the continental shelf not just the fish the sea critters all of them mm-hmm. you know the the marine invertebrates the crustaceans the crabs the tunicates everything everything evolved to do better when they have structure breaks in the current slightly higher carbon footprints on the bottom um and so we just wanted to make it better. Now, we were interested in making snapper fishing better, but we also understood that when we made it right for snapper, we were going to make it right for kingfish and, and bonita and jackfish and amberjack and the inshore sailfish and the tarpon, all of them. So that that's kind of what motivated us. And then we were unhappy with the way the feds were managing the red snapper fishery, and they obviously were not paying attention to their scientists or the science. Um, and Texas Parks and Wildlife manages the that snapper fishery inside at nine miles, and there was, A, not very much hard substrate reef inside Texas waters, and the part that what was there was getting hit really hard, and it actually was being slightly overfished. And so we thought, well, let's see what we can do about this. So this is about uh, leading into 2015 when uh, you and your brother Bob and and Daniel Bryant uh, got together and formed the nonprofit organization Friends of the RGV Reef, and that thing gets formed in 2015. So that's fairly recent. Uh, tell us about the organization and what you guys are attempting to do. What's the purpose of this thing? 
<laughs> well, the purpose was to not commit a felony. <laughs> so, well, that's always a good thing. That's always a good that's, thing. That's a good start. So, so you know, back in the old days, in the 80s, if you had a crapped out boat, you'd tow it offshore. And I never did. But some of the guys that were really forward thinking and were invested in, in some, some of the reef type fishing did this multiple times is you you drag a boat offshore and sink it and some of those old sunk boats out in 30 fathoms are fabulous places to fish so we we decided that we needed to do that there needed to be more reef inshore and so we looked at the different ways to do this and everything we wanted to do without a permit was going to be a felony and so you know, I'm kind of a nerdy sort, and you know, I, I I live in Austin, and for my work, I I pester governments to do things, and so so I started <laughs> I started pestering Texas Parks and Wildlife Artificial Reefing Program in the the form of poor old Dale Shively, who runs a program, had to listen to me, and he was so patient and so good, and he's got so much on his plate. But anyhow, he taught me what I needed to do to get permitted. Now, let me tell you, permitting a reef is a giant pita, um, and, and it's expensive. And so what he told me was, you've got to go get stakeholders to show me that there's enough support there that if I spend the money and time to permit a reef, that something will happen. And so, you know, and and, and I know South Padre Island, South Texas is kind of the ignored stepchild of... And boy, I've really found it out since then, you know, to, to paraphrase Churchill, an iron net has descended across the Gulf from Port Aransas to Key West, and no money can get south of it. I knew that. And so it is a common perception when you get uh, south of Corpus Christi. Yeah. And so I knew that we had to do it all exactly right. And I'm, I'm perseverating on this because one of those connections we made was really critical. And the connection that we made is I figured that we needed to have an academic connection. And we chummed up, you know, political leaders and fishing groups and, and you know, we got the Texas Shrimpers Association and the city of South Padre Island and, and Port Isabel and, and the Shoreline Task Force and all these guys. And I kept pestering the marine biologist at UTRGV. And that guy wouldn't answer his damn telephone. And I got more and more frustrated with him. And I figured I was going to get some guy, you know, that's used to counting penguin poop in Patagonia and, and didn't have much of a, of a, of a, of a staging in the real world. And ultimately I got Dr. Richard Klein and he answered the phone call. And so we started chatting with him and, and I got a guy that was already doing snapper research and I got a guy, this is what really counts. I got a guy that had seen the same stuff that we had seen underwater hundreds of times. And he saw the piece that was missing. Where were the babies? I mean, we've all been to these, to the rigs and, and, and to naturally occurring high relief reef. And, you know, you see uh, fish from, 12 inches and up but, but where are the little ones right so now dale and it i mean gary in addition to avoiding felonies uh we're getting to the purpose of the friends of the Reef, which was this recognition that the structure the sub the substrate available in the nearshore waters uh wasn't conducive to the life cycle of snapper that you had to deal with the baby fish and the juvenile fish and a propagation of these this species through its 
uh, life cycle. And uh, that's kind of what you guys have ended up spending a whole lot of time and energy and money trying to create, isn't it? Well, yeah. So, you know, what what drives you and what your organizational goals are in the 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 in this grant application please state your mission goals um <laughs> yeah, that's right the, yeah. what, it's always what, question one uh, you know it is in those applications but to get the kind of to get the kind of of work out of volunteers that we get you've got to have a goal that really drives somebody's heart okay so one of our big goals is for there to be enough fish that a kiddo in a mom and pop boat, not a big boat, a little boat, maybe a little bit better than a leaking 18 foot aluminum Lone Star, but that they can go and bend a pole and catch. And that's getting to be very difficult. And and that really, I think for for all of us is is the big motivator. So if, if that's what you want, you got to have lots of fish and they have to be stupid fish. If you're going to have lots of fish, what we found out is you can't attract them from elsewhere you got to grow them. And that's the piece that we learned from Dr. Klein. That's the piece that nobody else is doing. That's the piece that allowed us to put damn near half a million fish back in the Gulf in the last two years. And this is also an interesting thing because it represents an evolution from going off and sinking a derelict old boat secretly in the night um, <laughs> for your for your honey hole to a, a much more scientifically based understanding of low relief habitat that that the science suggests is essential for juvenile survivability um and gary i want you to talk all about this because it's really interesting to me um and just to just to make this pivot to go just quickly back to this kind of historical how we got here thing um the activity of shrimpers and not shrimpers but the shrimping activity that happened. The method of fishing shrimp involved uh, dragging a net that had a chain on it across the bottom of the ocean to catch the shrimp. And over repeated trips doing that, the yeah, uh, decades decades of doing this, uh, the bottom of the ocean just got kind of flattened out. I mean, it's kind of muddy out there. Um, the, the reef material that would have existed would have been... Uh, flattened out and scraped off and that uh took away a, a habitat and you are effectively endeavoring to rebuild it in a, in a in a sense yeah so you know i don't believe in beating up the shrimpers the shrimpers have done as soon as they understood what they needed to do the shrimpers have done a lot of good the other thing that's going on is we're seeing the last of them too you know um there's very few left they have a they have a very difficult time making a living um and they just don't need to be beat up for one thing there aren't very many of them and for the other thing you know their turtle extruders and their bycatch extruders really work the the part about low relief reef and we ought to define a little bit about what that is and what it means so the short course is when the little fish swim over the big reef the big fish eat them um temperate reefs not are unlike coral 
tropical reefs, which have lots of juveniles and lots of little fish around them. Temperate reefs don't have little fish on them. The big fish eat them, or they do what's called conspecific rejection. They run them off. Here is a here is a littler snapper that'll compete with me for me with food. If I could possibly run him off, that's what I'm going to do. The so so this relic low relief reef was formed as the coastal shelf was drowned over the last 40,000 years. 40,000 years ago, the, the, the bank was 40 miles offshore. Hmm. Off South Padre Island, it was 100 miles off Galveston. It was about 240 feet shallower. And uh, as the earth warmed and less uh, um, moisture was trapped in the ice caps, A, rainfall increases, and B, ocean levels increase. And so there was a series of, of river channels and guts and um, sand dunes. And in the sand dunes, on the bottoms of the sand dunes, there would be, you know, some organic matter. And so there was some loosely cemented sandstones. There were caliche balls. There were clay balls. Uh, there were, um, you know, the, the corners of these old guts that and this is all really friable material, and it's all you can still find it in the areas that were not trawl fished around around big, tall, naturally occurring reefs. You can still find this stuff, and we find it in in shrimp boat trash. So all of these relic shorelines, what you're talking about, the former dunes and all of the the contours of the river valleys and all of that stuff gets drowned forty thousand years ago with rising sea levels, and it was this 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 diversity of bottom habitat that was a major factor in the productivity of the fishery is that kind of what you're saying yeah well um again we're getting back to starting to understand that the marine life is also habitat limited i mean everybody understands it for the for the wildlife on the bank it's the same it's the same offshore yeah um there there would be soft corals, whip corals, those little kind of yellow-looking strings that you used to see on the beach when we were little. Um, and what the low-relief reef does that's really critical, it, it bumps juvenile survivability. So if if a little fish doesn't have a rock to dodge around so that it can turn inside a much faster um, straight-line predator, if it doesn't have a place to get out of the current and rest and convert its food into body mass, if it doesn't have a place, especially a little place that has a sharp enough edge that it generates a little bit of a of a vortice in the water that kind of bamboozles its food so that yeah, it can eat Eddie. its food better, um, if it doesn't have that vortice that causes uh, a little bit more organic matter to sink to the bottom where there's just enough carbon that, that an invertebrate, a marine invertebrate can live. And let me tell you, fish do like worms. That's they sure do enough the true. polychaete worms. Yeah. Um, then they just don't live. Yeah. And, and the mortality rates, even, even the best mortality rates of these little fish about the size of your fingers, 97% over 30 days. So very few of them survive. The, and, and it can't be big stuff. So if this big stuff, if this, if this low diffuse reef is gone, then you don't get as many demersal or reef type fish. And so that's the piece that we learned from Dr. Klein. We were going to make another monoculture of, of big stuff because we just didn't know any better. That's what 
That's what Dr. Klein taught us. Well, let's 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 be a little more specific for folks who are not that familiar with the subject matter. Uh, so the organization gets formed. You're obviously interested in in reefs. There is a practice out there of sinking these old ships. Um, we know we what, are, you're going to need a permit. We're going to need a permit. We know that, uh, and we need to talk about what Parks and Wildlife did here when we get down into the agency execution of this thing but but it was it was Klein's insight about the nature of the reef material and the diversity of reef habitat that really opened y'all's eyes I think and drove the organization into this practice of low relief uh, reef building now what do this when you say that there's the big stuff you got to be a little bit more specific help our audience understand what is what was typically the science before you were enlightened by Klein and and we still see this around the American shoreline where people are putting out the the uh, the pyramid stuff talk about talk about artificial reef technology and what is different about what you and your brother and Daniel Bryan are up to at uh, friends of the RGV reef well, what's different about us, first off, is that we're poor. And so we, we couldn't afford pyramids because they're, they're expensive. Um, so reefing pyramids are, are like a pyramid, um, except they Six, eight feet tall, something like that. They they're, come they're, in sizes, but they're, they're big. They're eight feet tall. They have a 10-foot base. Um, my friend Tom Hilton builds absolutely the very best ones out there, Atlantis Marine Services. And that's mostly what gets reefed these days and 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 reefing managers what they have been able to do has been constrained and is is less uh, diverse over time because they're they're short of time uh there's not very many of them and so they don't have the they don't they don't have the manpower or the time to go scare up materials of opportunity and the materials of opportunity are recycled concrete you know because basically all you can put in a, a permitted reef is steel or concrete or a combination thereof and boats are tremendously expensive to clean part of which is because the EPA has um, got some kind of screwy ways that they look at the plastic on wires that's what makes them so expensive to reef uh, along with other things so you're stuck with concrete and if you don't have the money to go buy pyramids and what you're going to do is beg concrete from your local contractors and you go and you and, and so that's how that's how you do it if you're poor the the other problem with with pyramids there's nothing wrong with pyramids fish love them but they're only one step in that habitat layer uh, that habitat ladder yeah so let's let's connect those dots and th and this is that life cycle insight that klein helped y'all get to uh which is the larger reef whether it be a ship or or larger materials uh attract a particular age and size of fish that inhabit that area and that kind of that that big competitive large structure stuff is not the home for babies and juveniles and it's this precursor setup that you guys have sort of jumped on is that kind of where you're where your focus is well our focus is on providing all of the graduated stepping stones for all of the life cycles of all of the fish 
Okay. okay. We, that's we, a great goal. We, we, you know, we talk about Snapper again because that's where the research is. Um, but, you know, we've also, so the best practice that you hear from the smartest of the marine biologists is the is the exact same as if you go up to steamer rock or turtle hole it's diffuse complex reef of of different heights that provide right. that enormous productivity and so with mother nature biting us on our old nalgas and the good smart biologist you know with with the proof that we can take to people that we're trying to get money from we're building a pretty good reef yeah i think that one here's a simple way to look at it you're mimicking what would have naturally been there had it not been destroyed perhaps yeah or we're mimicking we're mimicking what's there that we can see that works right. the piece that's gone is that we think that's gone is the lower leaf reef and so what we did to to try to ameliorate that um, is, well, uh, the first year we put down 67,000 cinder blocks, which is quite a few cinder blocks. And the uh, that was in 2017. And then we also put down another about 3,500 tons of, of recycled concrete. Um, we we had the one Gulf Consortium looking at, because this is cutting edge marine biology, unfortunately, we're a little short on research money, and that's another topic. But we had them in, in the reef looking at different different types of low relief reef, and they estimated- Well, Gary, you said, you said the one Gulf Consortium yeah, uh, and then you got to tell our listeners what that is and who that is. Okay, so the and one then keep going. So the One Gulf Consortium, from my perspective, I understand there's multiple um, uh, uh, educational institutions in it, but but the ones that that I deal with are um, Texas A and M, Galveston, Jay Rooker, smart biologist, fabulous, good, smart guy, um, uh, Greg Stunts, Heart Institute, also. Texas A&M, another fabulous marine biologist and, and a bunch of smart guys that work for him. And then uh, Dr. Klein at UT RGV Marine Sciences Division. And so they they put together several different uh, things that they were going to put on the bottom. Let's see what works the best. Is it oyster shell? And, you know, there's all this research that shows that oyster shell hash, which uh, is about all they've got up in the upper coast around louisiana alabama mississippi that's super it's what they have so it's it's the super important low relief reef for that bunch that bunch of science and then okay so well if we put down concrete and the concrete doesn't have the right ph and it doesn't grow the right algae on it well what about limestone so we put down some limestone stuff and i was going to try to get a bunch of limestone out of mexico but that was too many moving parts so what we wound up putting down was uh slightly out of spec cinder blocks and the fish really like cinder block because they've got lots of holes and cracks and crevices that they can hide in um they we we just dump them off the this the boat at the surface you know 70 feet above and as they sink they 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 spread out like shotgun shot and cover an area that's about 90 feet in diameter and if you put three pallets of cinder blocks which is 72 each you make a nice little um a nice little pile of cinder blocks that um has uh cinder blocks stacked one on each other a little bit in the middle and then they get pretty diffuse out on the outside edges so you've made a habitat for 
remember that when the little fish swim up to the big reef, the big fish eat them. So, you know, that single cinder block that's out there is a great place for an immediate post-settlement juvenile that's the size of your thumb. And where they're stacked up, it's a great place for the, you know, six-month to 18-month-old guys that are hand-sized to 12 inches long. All right, let's do the let's do the let's do the supply list now because I know you guys have put down a lot of things down into first of all there is an area of what is it 16 or 1800 acres that's been permitted. It's 1650 acres which is huge for a Texas reef. Yeah, okay. Can the, we pause on that cuz I uh, the, the the size of it is one of the things that I think is really interesting as far as the design and the habitat style right. here because mm-hmm. I think if I understand it correctly I mean it's for, it's it is really freaking big (laughs) well it's a big it's a large area within which artificial reef materials can be placed this is under the texas parks and wildlife artificial reef program this is dale shively's department but there's an authorized area of placement there's lots of specifications as to what can be put there and densities and all sorts of details but let's just tell our listeners about the stuff um you've mentioned cinder blocks have been put down you've You've put down railroad ties. Can you tell us about railroad? And didn't you do railroad cars? I mean, tell us what is what materials. And I and I I love this reference you made. Materials of opportunity. Uh, tell us what you think is what you have put down and what's on that. What are list. good materials? What are the of good? What do you love? Free. <laughs> free is a very good price free yes. is a very good price free made of steel and co- it can only, concrete it can only be concrete and steel and um you know rgv reef let's go back and talk about the size and why it's the size that it is sure so rgv reef is 1650 acres the average reef in texas is 80 to maybe a big one would be 160 acres there are a couple that are 320 acres there's a grand total of 4,000 acres of artificial reef off the texas coast of which rgv reef is 1650 acres and my brother bobby understood that we had to have space and did a great job along with the, the marine biologists of getting parks and wildlife to to and we, we were so desperate to grow these babies because because you don't get an opportunity to put back to do I mean the Gulf of Mexico was so wonderful to us as children you just almost never get a chance to do something constructive and and we figured out right away that if if we could bump the juvenile survivability of these little fish that we could put fish back in the Gulf and so my brother was saying well just just give us a little thing that's a hundred feet wide and and but really long east and west and these fish will be driven by the current and and they'll hear that reef and they'll they'll swim down to that reef and and we can grow them up where they're bigger or or if you can't do it east west would you give us north south for for a ways and 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 that'll probably work too and and he you know we drew out this l that was about a mile wide or about almost two miles wide and and really skinny just if it was land it would only be good for growing spaghetti and we did the same thing north and south and it kind of made an l and Gee whiz, Dale Shively, and he had to fight for this too. 
he squared it off and we got a reef that's a mile north to south and two miles east to west that we can generate that diffuse habitat for all these fish so that is part of the magic of rgv reef so within this 1650 acre area as you know it, it is it this is plotted on maps it is permitted in a very specific location publicly it's all public it's all, it's public. all public and you guys are the partners with the state and a bunch of other players in putting material inside this area what's the depth range of the reefing site that you have and and so people understand not the entire 1600 acres is going to be filled with material it's sporadically diversity placed i mean but what's the depth range of uh of the of the zone that you're working in it's 65 feet uh, on the inshore edge and then another two miles offshore from that it's about 75 feet ah it's a pretty consistent it's pretty consistent well the you know the bottom of the gulf of mexico is dead flat and yes. that's part of the problem is that you know there's no place to hide no place to get out of the current it's just this kind of muddy sandy desert um our area has several things going for it um our bottom's relatively hard and sandy so if i if i dump over a pallet of of cinder blocks Two years later, I still have cinder blocks on the surface. You do that up by Houston, and you've got a cinder block-shaped hole in the mud. Actually, <laughs> the, the hole is filled in, and, and it's gone. Right. It'll support some weight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Keep going. It's it's relatively clear. So, you know, the, the very bottom of the Gulf of Mexico is... Uh, has this nephloid, what the, the biologists call a nephloid layer, and what what scuba divers call the damn murk. Mm-hmm. And you can't see, and it's cold, and so you, you swim out of this beautiful blue water down into this bottom layer where Big Bad certainly lives and is about to swim up and bite you on the behind because you can't <laughs> see him coming. And so... People don't much know what's going on down in that nephloid layer. It's hard to tell what's going on down in the nephloid layer. Um, and is it right off the bottom? It's just just off the bottom. And mm-hmm. but we have the least dense nephloid layer, probably certainly off the Texas coast, and probably uh, until you get around to the Florida side of the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. We also have the densest bunch of juvenile snapper any place in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, according to CMAP data. So we've got tons and tons of little fish that are looking for a home. We've got the space to provide them a home. And the trick is to scare up enough money and be efficient enough to do it on an industrial scale. Wow. And this is the advantage of the nonprofit, of having an organization that can partner uh, with Texas Parks and Wildlife is uh, because of your flexibility, your ability to operate quickly, your ability to partner with the private sector, get your hands on. When we say railroad ties here, we're talking about concrete, concrete railroad, railroad ties, yeah, not, not, the, not, not the wood ones. Not, not those ugly wood ones. And uh, and it, it seems like this public-private partnership with the nonprofit in the center of it has worked really effectively. Dale, uh, Gary, how much stuff have you put into the reef so far in either tonnage or area how's it going so far and where are you on the scale of completing this artificial reef area are you 20 percent where you want to be give us a sense of scale we're about 20 30 percent of where we need to be you know i asked shively kind of dale shively from texas parks and wildlife what it was going to take to fill the reef and you know it's going to take 20 million bucks in several decades i'm 64 I don't have several decades, and we certainly don't have 20 million bucks. So this is part of why we we started using materials of opportunity. And and 
we, we got a lot of help from a lot of people. Um, and so we were able to, to put material down much, much cheaper than, you know, new construction material. So let's see. So um, 64,000 cinder blocks plus 3,500 tons of, of, uh, of concrete uh, recycled concrete, which was concrete riprap and and uh, box culverts. Oh, the fish love box culverts because they got those square sides. Um, and then we 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 got to mix it up with the Burlington Northern and Santa Fe Railroad, and they have concrete railroad ties that wear out. I, I don't know how a concrete railroad tie wears out. Well, I do. The metal clips wear out. Um, and they were trying to find something useful to do with them. And they'd been talking to Dale Shively and he just wasn't nimble enough and couldn't put the pieces together quick enough. And so um, in last year, we started receiving these concrete railroad ties from the Burlington Northern and Santa Fe Railroad. And they're fabulous. They weigh 700 pounds. They come in gondola cars that have 70 to 100 tons in them. The car's 12 feet tall at the top, and, and they're, 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 they're inside this car, and so they're a little bit hard to get out. And if you want to utilize them, you've got to have deep water port facility and a stupid expensive machine called a grapple that can that has a has a gondola that can raise the person up high enough that they can look into the railroad car and then and then it's like it's like going to the HEB with the buddy bucks there goes another winner you got to pick them out with a grapple and set them on the Texas ground very Texas reference there HEB is our grocery store <laughs> and he's talking about the uh, kids the kids toy game where the yeah. little grappling arm goes down and picks up the small you know, this is a thing the kids do in Texas. So yeah. For all of you folks out of Texas, that was the reference. Keep going. Keep going, Gary. Sorry. And, and so it's it's hard to put all those pieces together, but the folks at the Port of Brownsville, and the Port of Brownsville has been very supportive to us, and they gave us, they gave us, and we've had it for four years now, and this is where we staged all our material. And anybody that wants to do this, the first thing you go do is talk to your local port. Two acres, deep water frontage rail siding so so no charge no charge one dollar another valuable consideration unbelievable yeah no they're Thank fabulous you to the, the port of brownsville for because it is, this is a large-scale construction exercise that involves ships and railroads and tons and tons of material this is not for rookies it's getting stupid big and actually a little bit scary so so last year and kind of slopping into the uh, oh january was uh let's see 37 trips 100 and basically we call it 200 tons of trip so there's about 7000 tons 14 million pounds wow yeah so railroad ties concrete railroad ties drop with that same about 90 foot uh radius and they they tangle like pickup sticks and they make incredibly good complex reef with lots of hiding holes of every size and you know the biologists obviously show and it's obvious to fishermen that the more complex a reef structure is the higher the species richness and the greater the total biomass is so concrete railroad ties are are like a maiden's dream for us um and you know I, we're going to try to put down another 20 million pounds 10,000 tons this summer and if things go really well next summer I'll have scared up the money and have you know when you start talking about moving 20,000 tons of concrete railroad ties you're talking about uh, a 
a a train that would be 1.6 miles long. You're talking about wow. a thousand diesel semis worth of material, and you're starting to talk about industrial scale moving of material, and it comes with industrial scale headaches too. Luckily, you know, I, 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 we've got a guy named Daniel Bryant that is. He runs Bryant Industrial Services, which taught him how to do industrial scale stuff at industrial ports around the state of Texas. And he just pulls our cookies out of the fire over and over and over again. So let's let's talk about the logistics of this thing. So you've got 20 million pounds that you want to place at how many railroad ties was that again this summer? Well, there's there's three. Well, OK, so that's that's 20,000 tons. I'm sorry. 20,000 tons would be 40 million. 40 million Pounds. pounds. Okay. Of, all right. And so we they, gotta, weigh, they weigh about 700 pounds a piece. Okay. So 20,000 tons times three is 60,700 60, pound, eight foot long. Wow. Do not drop them on your feet, concrete railroad ties. Right. That's a lot of stuff to move. So it's going to come down on this train. We know the Port of Brownsville is doing it free. Does the railroad company charge you anything for the railroad ties? Nope. How about the transportation to the site? Nope. So shout out here to Burlington Northern and the Santa Fe Railroad guys for donating for this supporting. material. Yeah, wow. And so you can get it to the Deepwater Port. Now we've got to put it on a ship. And how many miles offshore are we going? And who pays for who's who's donate is that a donated transportation or are you paying for that no that's the one piece that we can't get donated and that makes sense it's and, a direct it's, fuel cost and real oh, money everything industrial everything industrial offshore is stupid expensive it's thousands of dollars a day okay so yeah. if you've got 20 million tons that you're going to put off what's the budget for that to execute it, given all the donations, how much money is that going to take? I need about five hundred grand. Well, that seems cheap. It's tremendously cheap. Okay, yeah. so twenty thousand tons done on a normal reefing contract would be well, just figure three thousand dollars a ton. So that would be twenty thousand times three would be six sixty thousand thousand. $60,000. It would be stupid expensive. We just couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of the problems that reef projects have is it, that yes, it's, it would be it would be $6 million. Okay. 6 That's million a lot bucks. Of money. So, re- reef projects in general, just to just to zoom this out for the audience, you know, I suspect that most of our audience uh, has scuba dived on an artificial reef. Um perhaps fished on an artificial reef uh when you are taking material that is not i mean one of the reasons why sinking ships out there is so nice is you can float them out and then sink it i mean you need a major barge or some sort of vessel that can hold hundreds of thousands of pounds millions of pounds over multiple trips of stuff and then once you're out there you've got to dump it which requires machinery you guys i saw had the i mean you what i love the way you guys do it why don't you tell uh tell us about the little mo and that operation that you had going on i know it's not currently happening but kind of bring us up on how you got all that stuff deployed so the little mo is 115 foot um, landing craft. It's bigger than a Higgins boat and smaller than a landing ship tank, smaller than a, an LST. And um, it was built in the 50s. And, you know, it has the drop down bow in the front, which they never use. But the really wonderful thing about a landing craft is that um, its stability isn't 
compromised when it has a big deck load. So, for example, if you had a if you had a 200 foot long OSV uh, offshore service vessel, it could probably carry around 120 or 30 tons, and the little mo could carry deck weight of about 200 tons because she's she's low to the water, yeah. and. Um, so we were moving material with the little mo, and we've used the little mo for the last couple of years uh, to move material, and and she moved that all those cinder blocks. And the other good thing about the little mo is the guys that run the little mo have been putting out these these reefing pyramids, and so they know how to put stuff out tight and being able to stack material i mean you know if 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 you're going to put out three pallets of cinder blocks you got to have somebody that can drive back to within five or ten feet of the place where he was when he put over the first pallet and the second pallet and we built some we built some pretty cool structures with with cinder blocks with a little mo we built a a ridge a thousand feet long that is uh about a foot and a half tall out of cinder blocks and you got to be accurate to be able to do that and that by the way is is a spot that seems to be really attractive to these little fish um so i'm sorry i forgot the question well i just want to pause and just you know again just visualize what ha- what's happening there. You've got this barge with cinder blocks on it floating, let's just say 65, 70 feet above the, the bottom of the ocean. And the driver is going to position this thing just right. And then there's going to be a dude on the back with like a bobcat who's going to push over the cinder blocks, right? That's how you did it. Essentially, but he doesn't push them over because you'd lose the pallet. And if the pallets start washing up on the beach down on the Padre Island National Seashore, we get a spanking. How would you say you would deploy material to get the best bang for your buck? Oh, that's that's another, that's, you know, we're hoping that RGV Reef will be a test bed and will change the way that material gets placed and what gets placed in reefs in the future. And there's also another 4,000 acres of, of reef up the Texas coast that can that could benefit from additional complexity and the addition of um, nursery reef and and mid-sized reef and higher relief reef. Um, you know, every... Every scrap of material that we put down is put down uh, using a what a program that's called HiPack that allows us to very precisely place it. And basically, Dr. Klein and I puzzle out, okay, well, we've got this much money and we've got this many cinder blocks and we have this many box culverts. We have this much riprap. And so we need, to, we need this here and how many patches can we make? And it's patches that are important. It's patch reefs. So one of the problems with small reefs and the way the material gets deployed is it typically gets deployed too densely. And so you put all your eggs in that one basket. And, and the problem with that is almost all these reef fish function like bullies. And you need to think of a reef as a playground. And if you've got one playground, you only get one set of bullies. And they're, and remember, these fish are just running their competition off just as hard as they possibly can, which is why when you go to a reef and you catch snapper, you catch all the same size because because we all got together and ran off all the little ones and no bigger ones have come to run us off yet. So we, we, we're putting our material out in, in patch reefs that are, that are separated so we can get the most bang for our buck with that material. And, and we want to have multiple 
sizes and as complex as we can of course to have those graduated stepping stones for all of the all of the different fish through their life cycles the one interesting thing where we violated that rule and we did so because all the biologists got so excited that i that i was convinced to do so is we've started to make a big pile and we put 3,500 tons of concrete railroad tiles in one spot and it's in 75 feet of water and it built the pile up to 32 or 33 feet now what I wanted to do was put 4,500 tons down and build it up to within 45 feet of the surface um, and we haven't quite got there yet now the big pile doesn't have a fancy name like the CCA corner which is our great take spot a great fishing spot is named for the CCA because they were early supporters of us and I'm holding that naming that big pile until I get a sponsor for it but the cool thing about the big pile is is that a it's up in the photic zone it's off that nephloid layer on the bottom and uh, so it's it's better for the semi-pelagics the biologist told me it's going to make it's going to make a knuckle in the water and generate a plankton bloom and i just didn't believe it i thought no 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 it the, the plankton the plankton can't get there and grow quick enough to make the food for the forage fish until they're swept down current um but i think that might actually be happening my brother was there yesterday and he says there's schools of birds working there's there's forage fish everywhere and a high relief reef yeah. Oddly enough, it's really important to forage fish that feed our pelagics. And so all those glass minnows that you see on the beach, the little tiny ones that are about as long as two joints of your little finger, they grow up into menhaden and pogies and sardines, and they move offshore. And they seem to need, and I, there's not much research on forage fish, but you always see them around oil rigs and, and sunken ships, and they're always relating to some kind piece of really high-relief reef. So it must be important to their life story, or they wouldn't be there. Well, they're, they're plankton eaters, so they're going to be up in the upper part of the water column probably that makes sense that's where the food is in the photic zone right yeah and so it looks like the big pile is actually making that knuckle in the water huh. to generate um, a plankton bloom maybe or maybe those fish are just there because they're as the scientists say thigmotropic in other words they like to be around something so let me just uh, for the for the listeners out there when you say low medium high relief low relief something like less than five feet off of the bottom it's less than three feet off less the than bottom. three at medium reef maybe less than 10 feet off the bottom bingo and then a high relief can be up to 30 feet off the bottom of the ocean is that i mean what is how just to help our listeners well, understand that well high relief is more than 10 feet okay basically and it can go you know fabulous high relief reef is an is an is an offshore oil structure right okay that runs all the way from the bottom up to the top yeah that they're kind of they don't they don't make much of an impact on the current though because the legs are round and so the water can flow around them so that they don't make much of a dead current spot behind them so that's kind of of a negative and there's only it's either 173 or 273 left in the state of texas which is a real shame because um, where there's not a bunch of mid-relief reef and low-relief reef uh, over in in Louisiana, where they've studied them, the the young of the young of the year, the 12 to 18 inch fish, millions of them are making their lives around these. Uh, 
oil field platforms, offshore oil field platforms. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens with the the big pile. But the big pile in the summer is going to be, you know, we're going to see tarpon there. We're going to see sailfish. Of course, we're going to see all of the other pelagics. Um, and I, of course, uh, go, going to do my damnedest to find the money for that extra thousand tons. And I would like to have a sponsor that would like to have that mountain or that bank be named after them and, and help us raise the money to, to build it. That is fantastic. And uh, so for all of you listeners out there, the Friends of the RGV Reef needs to raise $500,000 to take the next step this summer. And you can find them at, uh, what, FRGV. No, no, just, Come on, give it to them. Just RGVReef.com. <laughs> RGVReef.com. So, but, Gary, I want to I wanna ask about, you guys are working your asses off trying to get this reef done. You've got huge investment going you're working cooperatively with the academic community and the scientists and the regulatory community closely with parks and wildlife and the general land office who has to provide the also has some oversight into this thing it's a big job here's my question how do you know it's working what are you seeing out there how do you monitor it what is what is the what are the scientists telling you so far well there's two ways to look at it the scientists, you know, that one Gulf consortium went down and looked around and said, okay, well, there's on this reef, you know, we're, we're looking at this small area. And, and if we look at the count of the number of fish in this small area, and then we gross it up for the amount of area that you've actually put material on. And they gave us an estimate that we had in 17, that we had about 240,000 young of the year. And that's yo-yos, the guys that are about the size of your hand. Okay. And... We've watched them, and we've heard from our fishermen that they see them, and these fish don't leave, okay? Even, they, they especially don't leave good, complex habitat, and even crappy habitat, unless there's a hurricane. You know, you might have 20% of the snapper move off a rock in and no more than eight miles in 23 months. That's a number out of a, a study that just springs to mind. So, so these fish don't move. What that means is, is that if you build high relief habitat, you're only going to get 20% of the fish in an eight mile radius to come over to your reef. I got okay? you. So, but if you got a quarter of a million babies that you can wait two years and grow all of a sudden you've got lots of fish that are now 16 18 inches long that are unsophisticated fish that haven't burned up a whole bunch of food to make their body mass that mom and pop's little kid can go out and catch and we see the pictures and it's 20% fish attracted from elsewhere. Those are the big ones. And 80% fish resident that, that we grew. Yeah. So that's how we know. So the, the monitoring protocols are that the scientists get out on a boat, they go offshore, they get on their scuba gear and they're going down and they're taking, uh, they're, are they doing catch, uh, catch studies? Or are they doing underwater film? And is this required as part of the the regulatory review of, of the of the reef area um how much yeah tell us more about what the scientists are actually how are they documenting this and are they let me ask you this are they happy with the results are they saying you know what this is doing what we thought it would do or what are the results telling you right now the main issue about scientific research none of it's required and the main issue with scientific research is that almost all of it is funded, uh, especially down our way, by the Rigs to Reef program. Um, 
where whenever, uh, instead of having to load up a reef and drag it inshore, an oil company can cut the top off or dump it over where it has enough clearance for boats to go over the top, and they reef it in place, it's cheaper for them. Right. And they then fund half of that money to Texas Parks and Wildlife's artificial reefing program. And when... You know, when the oil field, when oil prices cease to be $100, the, you know, generally speaking, oil field activity really fell off on the dirt. But in the ocean, it was a slaughterhouse. And nobody is doing anything offshore. Nothing. Okay. Nobody's nobody's reefing any rigs nobody's they're not plugging anything now there's going to come a time when they're going to start to be forced to do things but remember there's still only a very very few rigs left and only a very few of those get reefed so the money for research that was available when we first started this and that had been funding a bunch of dr klein's research that gave us the knowledge to know how to do better that money is poof it's gone and so the amount of research that we thought we would do in the reef is much, much less than what's being done. We're really having to scrabble to come up with the money for, for to do research. And it's important to us because nobody's going to do what we're doing because it's such a pain in the ass. It's so much work. It takes so many moving parts to do that nobody's going to do it unless there's an obvious benefit. And... Me saying, hey, gee whiz, we grew a quarter of a million fish, you know, people are likely to think that that's just, you know, doc talk unless we've got, you know, good scientific studies. Now, what the, guy, what the researchers do is, oh, you know, they'll, they'll try to tag some fish, and this, this was something that uh, Rooker's crew was going to do. Uh, they were going to put little pieces of, of super glue on some of these fish and then put a camera to see how long they hung around. And they could look at the little colored tag on the fish. And wow. they, they do what are called, uh, they, they, they try to catch fish on hook and line. They'll set out traps before you put material down and then after you put material down. Actual, you know, swim into it and try to get the piece of fish traps. And then the coolest thing that we can do and that has been done lately in the reef are, are camera traps and there's some really fabulous video on rgvreef.com that shows how when the predator fish come around the little fish all swim down into the cracks and crevices of the rock um, it's just choice yeah we'll, you we'll share this. this on our social uh, so everyone can see it. it's very cool well i didn't so that was a camera trap that's how that yeah uh before the interview uh gary was showing us this clip about a a, a, a big jack cruising over one of these diff diffused reefs that you guys have built and it really is exactly what you're saying there's a swarm of small fish above this reef and this big fish comes cruising by and they just dive down immediately and get the hell out of the way it's a great it's a great video yeah, and the jackfish swims up, and he, he looks around in the cracks, and damn, we're not going to be able to get anything, and he just swims off. And, and then the little fish swim out, and, and they know that that hole means life to them, and so they fight a little bit. You're in my hole, damn it. Next time that jack comes, you get out of my hole. It's choice. It's yeah, a yeah. choice piece of video. So are you convinced that you're on the right path? Oh, and yeah, do, you have any, do you have any doubts about what you're doing? Zip, zero, nada. 
I mean, you know, we can see it. We can see it on our fathometers. We go out there and we see these fish. The, we get reports from the fishermen, and and you know, they're 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 telling us about the size fish that they're catching, and everybody can see. You know, we've got good fathometers. Everybody can see this this swarm of fish, and then we see what gets caught, and it's you know. 20% snappers from elsewhere and 80% little ones. And of course we get the, the pelagics are there, but you know, to have, to have a constant set of forage fish, like working over the big pile, constant set of forage fish with birds working over the big pile. That tells us that the big pile is working. We, we have a lot of fish, a lot of fishermen on this reef. There's every decent weekend, there's several boats out there and they go out there and they all catch their four fish per person. And they're, they're, they're all catching. Um, you got to have a lot of fish for that. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's daily, and so you can tell just by the economic activity and the guides, and you're getting good reports in the mice. Oh yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, where do you see this going from here? What are the uh, next steps for the RGV reef? Well, that's a toughie because, you know. Mark Twain said, old buildings, prostitutes, and even politicians become respectable with time. And part of what we've done is become respectable. Um, we've been a little bit smart. We've been smart enough to recognize good ideas when we see and hear them. But mostly we've just been doggedly persistent. And the more persistent you are, the luckier you get. And we've just been really lucky. We've been we've been funded by a multitude of entities and people, businesses, individuals. Um, those That's the whale money. We get a little bit of minnow money, which is people that donate 25 or 50 or $100 uh, on, our, on our website, which is rgvreef.com and you know give me an excuse and I'll say it 10 more times rgvreef.com <laughs> and there's and there's a donate bad. button right there's no. a donate button our facebook page has got all kinds of interesting video and a few fish pictures on it and it is it rgreef on facebook you know it's friends of rgv reef on facebook there you and, go and and it discusses what we're catching what we're doing and, and what the science is good follow good follow i follow um, good follow it's a good follow. Um, but if things go continue to go our way, we're going to get stupid big. I mean stupid big. I might have a I might have a budget. I'll have a budget of about 300,000 this year, and I'm hoping to have a budget of about half a million dollars next year. And I'm we're really working to get the throughput. When you start talking about moving 20,000 tons of material through a 2-acre site and moving them across the bulkhead, um, there's lots there's lots to tend to and i think we need if we have three or four more seasons like that where things go our way and where we can where we we can be really efficient with our marine transport and and we can build you know you balance and you know there is no black book with yellow stripes that's art that is low relief reef or reef building for dummies and especially with the low relief reef we're making this up as we go along with the best advice that we can get out of our scientific advisors and so okay so we've got this much of this now how much do we need of that so that we can have a conveyor belt of fish that will provide that fish for the kiddo and enough fish that the that we can put some fish back in the gulf we'll have more than what get caught 
Well, doing the work of the Lord, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, Gary Glick, president of Friends of the RGV Reef, working hard down there in deep South Texas to make the world a better place. Gary, to you and your organization, all of the folks who participate, CCA, uh, Burlington Northern, the, the folks with the boats, I mean, TPWD, TPWD Dale Shively, uh, what an effort. And I know you're getting rich doing this because uh, <laughs> I know you don't get paid. I'm just kidding. None of these guys do this for money. They do it for love. And to have those uh, those kids have an opportunity to maybe do what you did when you were a kid. Get offshore. No big charters. A place to catch a fish. What, a, what an agenda. Singing while I'm not